Thank you for downloading the Sturgeon Bay Community Church podcast. Join us each Sunday at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the corner of Georgia Street and 12th Avenue in Sturgeon Bay. For more information about Community Church, be sure to check out our website at sbcommunitychurch.com. Now, sit back with a notebook and a great cup of coffee and experience this week's message. Sturgeon Bay Community Church, transforming community by loving God and others. Well, good morning, church family. Once again, as you guys wrap up this time of uh, loving and, and uh, discussing, just wanted to share something very quickly. Um, we've got great volunteers in this church, and as this church continues to grow, there are going to be more and more opportunities to serve and to do. And so today, we really want to recognize those who um, volunteer in our student ministry. So uh, Dina Bargains, Derek Grinfell, and Beth Zolkowski are awesome adult leaders who come in here every week. We share teaching responsibilities. We love on the students. And uh, about an hour and a half of chaos every week is what they invest into the lives of the 6th through 12th graders in our church. And so this morning, we just want to thank them. I see Dina, and I think Beth is actually doing children's ministry this morning. So she's downstairs, and Derek is probably enjoying sunshine somewhere. Um, We'll see, I guess. But uh, our volunteers, we just thank you so much for all that you do, especially in the student group. So... Well, for those of you who may not know who I am, I am Michael, like I mentioned prior to announcements, and I do have the privilege of serving you as an associate pastor, and today I'll be sharing God's word with you. Pastor Shannon is at a conference in Florida, so for those of you who are thinking, oh, he's in Florida, lucky, no, he has spent the whole time inside listening to speakers and learning about small group ministry, so uh, he has a greater vision for what to do in this church and how to move forward and stuff, so um, don't don't, don't be jealous of him. He's probably ready to get home and live life again instead of just sitting and listening. So we're going to continue on in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20 today. Verses 16 through 20 of Mark chapter 1. And uh, so we're in our fourth week, I believe, of Mark And here we are, we are just flying through it all the way up to chapter 1, verse 16. So just so you know, we're going to continue this trend. And so you're going to get to experience Mark in amazing and deep and powerful ways in the coming months. So I want to encourage you to stay connected, to stay consistent as you can. And if you miss a Sunday, always know you can go to the church website and get caught up on all the great teaching here at Community Church. Now, um, Pastor Shannon, like I mentioned, has been teaching us from the Gospel of Mark for the last three Sundays. So if you've missed any of those, I do encourage you to go back and check those out on the website. We've got great videos. We've got them on podcasts, on iTunes, and Google Play. So there's no reason to miss a great message. And we'll spend a couple of seconds in review, but I encourage you to jump back and, and review yourself over the next few days. So the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. We see him throughout um, the story of Jesus. He, hang, he hangs out with Jesus and the disciples. He um, spends a lot of time post-resurrection and ascension hanging out with the uh, Apostle Peter. He also traveled with the Apostle Paul some. So John Mark is a, a fairly significant person in the history of the church. 
the Gospel of Mark is likely the earliest gospel to be produced between 60 and 66 AD, and it's short and concise, and it's driving forward. If you read the Gospel of Mark straight through, you're going to find words like, and then, and immediately, all the time. And, and Mark is like continually trying to push us through the narrative to get to the good stuff. And the good stuff is the, the truth that... Um, well, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, written to cover the Romans uh, and, and the Roman way of thinking. Uh, Gentile in vernacular, so he's not using a lot of Jewish words that are hard to understand. He's uh, imitating the culture. And his core theme, the thing he wants to drive home over and over again, the reason he's in such a rush is he wants to be able to say this so many times, is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Pastor Shannon and I want you to know, if you don't learn anything else about the Gospel of Mark, you know its theme. Say it with me. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And if we were to look at the core theme verse, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. In, in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, it's Jesus is King. In the Gospel of Luke, it's a, Jesus is, is man. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is God. And in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the servant who came to give himself for all of us. And uh, I just wanted to be able to say this word out in public, these two words, because it's so fun. Periscopic pericope. Isn't that fun? Uh, if you've been here the last three weeks, you know what that is. If you haven't been here, then this is your teaser. Go back and watch these awesome messages from the last three weeks, and you can know what periscopic pericope means, and you can use it to wow your friends and influence people. So um, periscopic pericope. As we've been spending time in Mark these last three weeks, uh, Pastor Shannon has taken us from understandings that Jesus is the Messiah. He's helped us to see the, the uh, prophecies of Isaiah fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We've, we've seen Jesus baptized. We've understand that John is the fulfillment of the one preparing the way in the wilderness that uh, is mentioned in Elijah. We see Jesus just filled with the Spirit of God, and we see his baptism, and we see his temptation. We've seen him tell us that the kingdom of God is at hand. And now we get the opportunity to see Jesus call out and recruit the first of his disciples. So here we are in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today because I really like the way it handles the Greek on a certain little area that we're going to focus on later. So uh, if you were to flip over to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, you would actually see almost the exact same narrative. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as the synoptic gospels. And so when we look at those three Gospels together, we see many of the same stories. Now, chronologically, they don't quite match up because these early first century historians writing the Gospels, they weren't really concerned necessarily about perfect chronology. They were more concerned about perfectly transmitting the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. And so their desires for thematic um, 
teaching kind of overrode their ideas of chronology, whereas us as modern readers, we're like, come on, what order did it happen in? Well, we can talk about that a little bit later. But here in Mark and Matthew, we see the exact same thing happening, almost the exact same words. And here is what happens. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, we can pause right there for just a second. I love scripture. It is so fun. Um, there's this, that, that little aside there at the end of that, that verse, for they were fishermen. It's like, okay, so you should know this, because they're at the Sea of Galilee, and they're casting their nets, but did you realize they're fishermen? You get They're fishermen. Okay, everybody? Scripture is so cool. When we, when we read these little asides, we read these little things, it's like sometimes you can see the, the, the people, the writer, just kind of like getting something in there that's, you know, their personality. God is using them and moving and, and speaking through them, but it's their personality that bleeds through. I wonder if Mark wasn't just a little bit of a, now, okay, I'm your teacher, and so they were fishermen. You got that right? Now, it's also, remember, this book was written not to a Jewish audience who grew up in Galilee and Judea, but to a Gentile audience, so someone who maybe didn't have the same perspective. So this wasn't necessarily a given in the readers of Mark's gospel. They didn't necessarily understand this, so Mark makes sure to help us understand. Now, the word that they use here, casting a net, the word net in the Greek, it's actually talking about a small, circular, weighted net. And they would have been standing on the shore and just casting that net out and then drawing it back in, trying to catch smaller fish along the shoreline. This was not an uncommon practice for fishermen who were at the end of their day, saw some fish on the shore, and just wanted to try and catch a few extra. Most of the time, fishermen here on the Sea of Galilee, they would go out overnight. So we understand this is probably first thing in the morning. And they're throwing out this small net and trying to catch these small fish along the shoreline. And Jesus speaks to them. He says to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, a lot of you in the Bible that you have in front of you, it might not say it quite like that. How, how does it express it? Anybody in the Bible that you've got in your lap, how does it Jesus say, I'll make you what? Or follow me and I will... Send you out to fish for people. Nice. What else? That's the same translation. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somebody's already not paying attention. Um, I'm telling Pastor Shannon. I'll, I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll maybe teach you how to be if you've got a really modern translation. But, but this, this, this translation handles the Greek really well because in the Greek, it actually says, I will make you to become. I will make you become fishers of men. So I want you to hang on to that. We'll get into that a little more deep uh, further along the line. But this isn't a normal, easy reading, is it? it? It makes it easier to just say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But that's not really what Jesus said. I will make you become Fishers of men is actually what he said. And we'll uh, dive into just the beauty of that here shortly. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, uh, the, the second 
time nets is used here, when we look in the Gospel of Matthew, it is specifically not the same little small net that they were using along the shoreline, but it, it, it's the word for huge nets that would have been used out of boats. So what we understand here is Jesus meets Simon and Andrew, and they're using their small nets along the shore. And then he calls them to follow him, and they leave not just those small nets, but all of their fishing paraphernalia. So it implies that they had boats. They had big nets. These guys were professional fishermen. They weren't just dudes hanging out on the shoreline casting for the tiny things. These guys made a living out of fishing. And they abandoned that to follow Jesus. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. Now, once again, this is a little more context that helps us to understand this was probably first thing early in the morning because what would happen is after fishermen would go out overnight to fish, they'd come back to shore, and one of the last things they'd do before going and selling their fish would be to mend their nets because they wanted their nets to be ready for that night's fishing. And so if John and James are sitting in the boat mending their nets, they must have just finished up for the day and they're closing out, getting ready to go home, getting ready to get a good night's rest, good day's rest, so that they can then go out the next night and go fishing. And immediately, you guys see that? He, immediately, you're going to see it all throughout Mark as we read it. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So what we've got now is that James and John, they're, they're fishing, or, or they're, they're mending their nets, they're done fishing for the day. Jesus calls them, and they leave the boat, and they leave their father Zebedee in order to follow Jesus. Now, in this culture, your parents are pretty important. Your family's really important. It's, it's the center of who you are. In fact, most folks in this culture and, and in that first century, you weren't known by your given name. You were known by your familial name. And your given name was just the distinction about which part of the family you were once you identified the family you were part of. And so to leave your family, to leave your parents, is almost to leave your complete identity behind. It's akin to just pushing it aside and saying, this is more important than everything I've ever been before. Everything you've known about me, I'm willing to let go of to follow Jesus. So we see Simon and Andrew giving up all the things that were important to them in provision and in work. And we see James and John giving up everything that was important and central to them in their identity and going and following Jesus. Now, what's going on here is we've got this beautiful introduction to a relationship between Jesus and Simon and Andrew and James and John, and it is the rabbi-disciple relationship. So the rabbi-disciple relationship is something that happened in the first century culture here where when someone wanted to learn spiritual things, they wanted to grow deep, they wanted to, to be able to understand the teachings of God, they would find a rabbi and follow the rabbi. So just so we can understand some, some background on this relationship, some background on the rabbi and the disciple and how they would interact in first century culture here. When, when we look at, at, the, at rabbi, it, it means teacher or master. 
Someone that, that you're following after. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, it means my great, my Lord, the most important thing in my life. And the reason a rabbi was so important is because someone would follow after them in order to understand how to apply the Torah to everyday life. So you've got the Torah, the heart of, of the Bible, the, the Old Testament teachings, and then the Mishnah, which is, as Pastor Shannon mentioned, it's this huge conglomeration of additional teachings by rabbis and leaders. And so someone who is really spiritual, they wanted to not just read the book, they wanted to follow a rabbi who would help them move beyond what they would have had um, in their childhood, a basic understanding of the Torah, into how it applied in everyday life. It's, it's, it's said that um, rabbis and disciples would have discussions about how to apply the Torah to their life. Things like, we, we all know it's, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? You're supposed to rest. So how do we apply this to our life? Well, is it acceptable to light a candle on the Sabbath? And if it is acceptable to light a candle on the Sabbath, how many candles can you light on the Sabbath before it's considered work and you've sinned? Now, we all sit back and go, what? Who would have those kind of discussions? But this is the kind of application that a rabbi would help a, a follower make, the Mishnah, the, the every little aspect of life and how the rules that God had given so clearly in the Torah applied to them. And then we move to the disciple themselves. They were, they were the learners. They were the pupils. They were the followers. And we're used to this, aren't we? We, we, want, we want to follow Jesus in discipleship. We want to know what it means to be a disciple. And this is, is the basic definition, to be a learner or a pupil or a follower. But there was so much more to this relationship than a lot of us understand as modern Gentiles in America. You see... It was typical that disciples would seek out the rabbis. They would find a great teacher and, and come and say, may I please be part of your school? May I please follow after you? May I please learn from you? And, and they were wanting to, to be part of that rabbi's life in order to learn the full life application of the Torah. They wanted to be able to understand scripture in a way that was deep and meaningful and how it would, would trickle out into everyday life. Now, we must understand most Jewish men would have been raised up with at least a basic understanding of the Torah. They would have been given a basic schooling in their childhood of God's word. But what they really wanted to know is now what does that mean to me? How does it apply? And, and how it worked out then is that they would share near constant daily intimate and personal interaction between the disciple and the rabbi. So it was, it was this all-the-time thing. Too often nowadays, we think of discipleship as what? A class. Anybody ever been in a discipleship class? How many of you? Um, see, I can't. Nobody? Man, maybe we need to do some discipleship classes. Um, <laughs> been a discipleship class. And now, how many of you felt like you were a really great disciple when you were done with it? Or did you just go through the class? You, 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 you studied, you learned, and then you walked away, and it didn't make a big difference. Because discipleship is not about learning per se, as far as facts, as far as memorizing things. But, but it is about taking what you've learned and applying it 
to life. It's about taking what you've learned and moving from just knowledge into developing discernment and action-oriented belief. And that's what a rabbi wanted to do. They wanted to move their disciples from just knowing things to being able to apply God's word on their own. And here's what happened is the teaching, it would often occur through questions and guided discussions among the disciples of a rabbi. So what would go on then is, is a rabbi might propose a question. What do you guys think about this? And allow the disciples to discuss and discuss and discuss and discuss and wrestle with a concept and struggle and doubt themselves and wonder and worry and talk through it. And it could take weeks for this one topic until, to be discussed until the rabbi steps in and says, all right, now, here's what God's word says and here's how we apply it to our life. And what's interesting is we can see this in Jesus' interaction with his disciples. He allows them to struggle, doesn't he? He asks them questions. He says, who, who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And he waits for them to answer. And he waits for them to think about it and to struggle with concepts. And, and that's what a disciple's, or I mean, a, a rabbi's role was in the life of a disciple, to guide them, to give them the, the ability to discern for themselves, to be able to see things anew through, through the eyes of, of the rabbi instead of, through their own eyes. And in fact, disciples often sought to emulate their rabbis in all aspects of life. And I mean all aspects. There's a story that I read that relates a time when a disciple snuck into his rabbi's bedroom in order to understand his rabbi's relationship with his wife more fully and to be able to copy it in every aspect. And so some of you are wondering, if you understand what I'm saying, just nod your head. You get that. The disciples were just rabid to be just like their rabbis in every aspect of life. Because the rabbi was to be held in the highest regard in the life of a disciple. The rabbi is the most important relationship in the life of a disciple. In fact, uh, a Mishnah written a little bit later um, than, than the first century here tells us that, that um, the rules for a relationship with a rabbi are that if your father and your rabbi both have an item stolen, your first responsibility is to recover the item of the rabbi, and then, if you have time left, find your father's stuff. It even goes further. It goes on to say that if your father and your rabbi are both sold into or captured into slavery, first you must redeem and ransom your rabbi, and then if you still have resources and time left, to redeem or ransom your father out of slavery. Unless your father is a rabbi, then you redeem your father first, and then your rabbi. You see, this relationship was supposed to be so intimate, so personal, that the rabbi was the most important person in the life of a disciple, in the community of disciples. The rabbi was number one. And so when we, when we look at all of this stuff, that it's usually that disciples came and begged to be part of a rabbi's teaching cohort, that, that disciples were trying to emulate their rabbi in everything, that disciples regarded their rabbi as more important than anything else in life. 
It takes these, these five verses and it kind of explodes them and helps them understand what's going on here and what Jesus is doing and, and, and what the expectations are for these four men and what, um, what these verses can mean for us. So number one, just to go back to the passage and to focus on some aspects of it. He called them. Now, if, if you remember, when we were talking about the normal rabbi disciple relationship, who does the asking when it comes to initiating the relationship? It, it's typically the disciple who says, please let me follow you. Please let me learn from you. Instead, we see Jesus, he comes and he says, you, come and follow me. You, come, go behind me as a disciple. He comes to these guys and, and it's, it's a complete departure from what's normal. It, when you research, there is no place else in any of the rabbinical writings or histories where you see ever a rabbi coming to the people and saying, you, follow me. It's always the disciples coming to the rabbi and saying, please, let me follow you. So here we have the most amazing rabbi ever, the most amazing teacher ever, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's coming to these guys and saying, come, follow me. He called them. He called Galilean fishermen. Now, some things to understand about Galilee, where, where this is going on. If, uh, if we were to look on the map, you can see Galilee, the Sea of Galilee's up top there. And then uh, down near Jerusalem is the area that was known as Judea. Oh, please don't do that. Sorry, the, the computer wants to mess up. It's like it misses Pastor Shannon. <laughs> so he called, though, Galilean fishermen. Now, what's interesting about Galilee, when you look at that, that map, Judea is down by Jerusalem. Judea is where all the religious elite hang out. It's where everybody who's anybody in the world of spirituality hangs their hat. But up in Galilee, that's where the people who make money are. There was a, a little saying that if you wanted to be religious, you go to Judea. If you want to get rich, you go to Galilee. Galilee is where there's fishing. Galilee is where there's wheat fields beyond compare. Galilee is where there's orchards that are producing bumper crops. Galilee is where there are vineyards that are amazing. But the Judeans, the religious elite, those who were the spiritual ones, they viewed those in Galilee as potentially no better than animals, as people who really weren't worth the time, as people who were... were not worth marrying, who, who, in fact, really, truly religious people should avoid intermarrying between Judeans and Galileans. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says that um, God's people aren't supposed to, to be intimate with animals. And rabbis would actually take that verse and use it as a justification to prohibit the interaction of Judeans and Galileans. That they are religious animals. They are spiritually dark people. And yet here's Jesus. Here's Jesus, the greatest teacher ever, the most spiritual rabbi ever. And he is breaking convention by first of all calling them instead of waiting for them to come to him. And second of all, 
He's calling the religious least. He's calling the unknown. He's calling the less thans. If you were a rabbi in first century uh, Israel, you weren't going to Galilee for disciples. You're going to hang out in Judea. You're going to get the cream of the crop. You're going to get the most spiritual people ever because you want to be a renowned rabbi. And here's Jesus calling out to the less thans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, the apostle Paul writes to the church of in Corinth and writes to us, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Jesus called the less thans, the brokens, the least, and he still does it today, and it's us. He still calls out to those who aren't very bright, (laughs) to those who don't have power, to those who have no wealth, and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to come after me. He called them, and he called them to follow. He called them to step out and follow. You see, what Jesus was calling these four men to and what he calls us to today, it's a journey, it's a process. It's an ongoing discussion, and it's a shared life. And ultimately, it is an intimate, personal relationship with the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he was calling Simon and Andrew and James and John to that day. But the interesting thing about following is that it always has price. It always is going to cost. Jesus in uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 14 verse 26 says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow after me, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple." He goes on to say just a little bit later, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, when Jesus comes to these four men, these four fishermen, and he calls them, and he says, follow after me, they understand the implications. They understand there is a cost to following Jesus. And it's not much, it's just everything. He says, in comparison to all your other relationships, I've got to be number one. In comparison to everything else that you have or possess or count as important, I've got to be the most important. And that's what it costs to follow me. And Simon and Andrew and James and John, they would have understood that that day. They would have understood what Jesus was asking of them. And they counted the cost And they left everything behind and followed him. 
Now, for some of you who think, well, man, these guys are amazing. They just met this dude, and all of a sudden they're following him. So you understand, when we look at everything chronologically, the four Gospels together, we understand and we can see that Peter and or Simon, who will become Peter, and Andrew, and James and John likely spent some time with Jesus prior to this. They, they met Jesus when they were disciples or followers of John the baptizer, and they saw Jesus be baptized. And we know that some time has passed since then. In fact, it's likely that they have traveled with Jesus and spent time with Jesus for up to about three months before returning to their work, beginning to fish again, and then seeing Jesus again this day, where he says, not just come hang out with me, not just come spend a little bit of time, but now I want you just to give up everything and follow me. Now I want you to get serious about this. Now I want you to stop playing games in this relationship and come in and be fully invested. And Jesus never changed that tune. He never, never eased up and said, hey, you can just come and you know, hang out and it's all good. But when he says, you really want to follow me? You really want me to be my disciple? You've got to be willing to give up everything. You've got to be willing to count everything else as of no value and renounce it. To give up every other relationship and count it as less than your relationship with me. In his book, I Will, Tom Rainier shares a story <clears throat> about following Jesus wholeheartedly. You had to admire his commitment. He made the decision to attend. He would not miss it. The weather was terrible that day. Steady rain, temperature in the 40s. He still got out in the weather. Because of the bad weather, he did not quite make it on time. It was difficult to get to his seat as well. But he persevered. His seat was not comfortable, but he neither left nor complained. His presence vividly demonstrated his love and commitment. He was joyous the entire time. He enjoyed the presence of fellow believers. His attitude, his attendance, and his enthusiasm all reflected his deep and abiding commitment. He was at a college football game on a Saturday afternoon. By the way, he did not attend church worship services the next day. He was tired from the ball game, and there was a 40% chance of rain. Does that speak to anyone else the way it speaks to me about the cost of following? About where I'm placing value in my life? What I'm focusing on? You see, when Jesus called his disciples to follow, when he calls us to follow, it's about moving beyond your faith as simply advice on how to live life. Hey, I get to hang out with this cool guy. His name is Jesus, and he's given me some good advice, and sometimes I pay attention to it, and sometimes I don't. But rather, taking us to a place where we are fully invested in recognizing that the good news is worth living out in action and character, and it's worth whatever it costs to be able to walk with Jesus, which is not an easy thing, but it's simple. Jesus called them to become. It, it, it actually, in the Greek there, remember he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. 
And that's actually what it says in the Greek. So when your, your Bible says, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men, we kind of get this concept of maybe if we follow after Jesus, he's just going to like wave his Jesus wand and then all of a sudden things are going to be perfect. We're going to be like these amazing disciples and all we got to do is, you know, just say yes. And, but, but what the scripture implies here is that in following, we're in a process to grow and change and develop and mature. So we will become, but who will make us become? Jesus. He says, I will make. Who's doing the work here? Jesus. We're fully invested in the process, but all the power is his. All the moving and doing is in his hand. We sit back and we say, make me, shape me, bring me into what I should be. We are fully dedicated to the, the following after, and he is fully dedicated into the becoming and making and shaping and bringing us into these, these new and exciting roles in life. He promises his disciples he'll make them into fishers of men. He'll make them into to people who are doing amazing things for the kingdom that they never, ever imagined could be possible. Colossians 3.10 says this, Put on your new nature. So you take and make the effort to choose to put on your new nature, but, but it's not something that you have to do as far as making the new nature. The new nature, it comes from Christ himself. He's doing the making. He's doing the shaping. And you, you make the choice to do the becoming. And be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. He called them to become, to make a daily submission to allowing him to be at work in their lives and shape them. It's the same thing he's asking of us. To daily submit to him having a hand in our lives, trusting in his power and his guidance and his direction to shape us and bring us to the point of becoming. And he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Now, in the Old Testament, fishing was a prophetic metaphor for punishment. Every time we see fishing in the Old Testament, it meant that God was getting ready to drag his people out of where they were comfortable and into punishment. In fact, if we look at um, a couple of verses, Jeremiah 16, 16 through 17 says, But now I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them, says the Lord. I am sending for hunters who will hunt them down in the hill, mountains, hills, and caves. I am watching them closely, and I see every sin. They cannot hope to hide from me. Amos 4.2, God says, The sovereign Lord was, has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. But see, this metaphor, this, this prophetic metaphor of destruction and punishment, Jesus flips it around. Jesus turns it on his head and says, I want to make you fishers of men. He turns the fishing picture instead of one of punishment. He turns it into one of rescuing the dying from the turmoil and sin of this world. He says, I want to make you into someone who rescues other people from the things that you've been rescued from. <laughs> What's interesting is... is um, when we start talking about where we're most powerful as believers, what ministry we can be most effective in, it's usually the things that God has rescued us from. 
where we're most effective. You see, I mean, alcoholism, abuse, addictions, broken marriages. When God rescues us and calls us out of those things and restores us, then he says, now I, I, I am making you to become a fisher of men who rescues other people out of those same circumstances and brings the life-giving gospel to them in that hurt and in that pain. The very pains we ourselves felt the deepest are the ones that we can minister to others in most effectively. Uh, being the child of a broken family. You know what? God put me in youth ministry for a number of years. Guess what I got to do? Walk students through their parents' divorces. Not that I wanted to, but I knew what it felt like. To help students know that God could rescue them up out of that brokenness and into new life. That the same is true for your life. That thing you considered your greatest weakness is your greatest opportunity for ministry. Where you were fished out from is the very place where you should be fishing. Because you know what it's like to be there. Jesus says he will turn us into fishers of men. Now, some of us get the concept, this is that State Farm commercial, you know, where we're fishers of men. Maybe we'll put a, put the dollar on the hook and try and, you know, oh, oh, I'm going to get you. I got, you know, no, this is not how we fish. It's not a game. It's, it's, not, it's not a comfy time on the shoreline hanging out with Jesus, you know, drinking communion juice and bread. It is instead hard work. When, when Jesus calls these four guys and says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, they don't have any notion that it's going to be anything but some serious labor. Because what are they? Anybody remember? What are they? Fishermen. Because they were fishermen. They're hanging out, and when Jesus says, I want to make you fishers of men, they understand what fishing means. Long, hard nights, odd hours, exhausting labor, hard work. And oftentimes, there weren't even fish in the net when you got done with your night. It, when we look in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, this is the, uh, the third synoptic gospel. This is the same instance that's going on that we've read about in Mark and Matthew. And here in Luke, though, we get a little bit more to the story, that they had been out fishing, and um, Jesus tells them to cast their nets out, and Peter, good old Peter, he's like, but Lord, we've been out fishing all night and haven't caught a thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's really excited about things, you know, right, okay, so we, we've fished, no fish, you're a carpenter, whatever. But since you, you know, we know who you are, sort of, and we're getting to know you a little better, sure, let's do it. And they throw the nets out, and they catch this huge haul of fish. And it's meant to serve in, in teaching us that Jesus is the Lord over all of creation, but also we can learn something about fishing in it. They fished all night and caught nothing. And... and this is what fishing looks like sometimes. And we're not just dangling a worm and, you know, wetting, drowning worms in a, in a lake and enjoying the sunshine. But sometimes we've got to go into the dark places and the dark nights of the soul and cast nets and work hard 
to see these things come to pass. And, 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 and to, to pull the nets in is not some, some little, you know, push a button and there you go. But, but imagine, I mean, they're pulling nets full of fish when they are successful into the boat. And when they're unsuccessful, they're pulling big, heavy, wet nets up out of the lake, back into the boat, knowing they get to go home with nothing. Fishing was not a sport. They knew it was going to be hard work. And so when Jesus calls them out and says, come follow after me and I'll make you fishers of men, he's not talking about a great charter vacation. He's not talking about spending the day out on the lake, getting a tan, catching some big ones. He's talking about hard work in dark places that's uncomfortable and difficult and sometimes not very rewarding. And you know what the disciples did? Immediately, they left and followed him. You see, they have the full picture. They're first century Jews, and they know exactly what the rabbi is asking of them. And they don't sit back and go, hey, well, you know, Jesus, how about this? Give me a month, let me figure it out, and then I'll get back with you. They understand the cost, and yet still, immediately, they left everything and followed him. They left their work, they left their family, they left their whole identity there on that shoreline and followed after Jesus and said, redefine me. Make me into something new. I trust your power, and I trust your plan. You see, the disciples' path, it is clear and simple. It's not easy, but it's clear and simple. Leave and follow. Count everything else as less than and follow after Jesus with all that you are. Because Jesus of Nazareth, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's worth following after. You see... We are just like Andrew and Simon and James and John. We're busy about our everyday lives. We're doing our own thing. We're finding our identity in, in our work. We're finding our identity in our families. We're finding our, our identities in our possessions. And yet today, Jesus is still calling. He's still coming to the broken and the least and the disrespected and the unwise and the poor, and saying, would you follow after me? Would you come and let me make something of your life, and let me make something of you? I will turn you into more than you ever dreamed possible if you'll only leave what you think is important and follow after me, and I'll teach you what really is important in this life. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to quit their jobs today and go be a missionary and wherever tomorrow. But what it does mean is that in the world where we work and live, we have got to be willing to allow God to redefine who we are, to use us, to shape us, for us to be going into dark and dingy places and casting nets with the good news of Jesus Christ, lived out poured into the lives of others and following him with all that we are. Some of us, following him, 
It's the first time we've ever made it choice. And we need to trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And know that we're sinners separated from God because of the wrong things that we've done. He's holy, and sin can't live in his presence. But he loved us so much, he sent Jesus, this very same Jesus we're reading about today. And Jesus lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross, and he rose again on the third day, that your sins could be forgiven if only you'll believe on him and follow after him. Some of you, that's the first choice you need to make today, potentially. Others of you, you've heard Jesus calling You've trusted him as your savior, but it's time to get serious and really leave and follow. You know the area that I'm talking about. I, don't, I could give a hundred different examples, but the one that matters to you is the one that God's laying on your heart right now and speaking to you. That's what matters. And so this morning, we're gonna take a couple of minutes. I've got this video. I just want you to watch. I want you to feel. I want you to understand what Jesus has done for you and then we'll follow, uh, finish up with a simple question and the disciples' path once again. And while the video is playing, if the worship team will make your way up, don't come up first thing necessarily. You know when it ends because you've already seen it. But uh, absorb what uh, we have to see and teach and understand. And then we'll respond to the call of Jesus in our lives here in just a moment. You. Look at your eyes. Look at them. Speckled, colorful, each one unique, and I created every one of them. I created everything, the universe, and you. I gave you your personality. I made you pure, complex, and every day, I give you life. I love you. But something happened. You cheated on me. You didn't trust me. You sinned. You cut yourself off from me. And although you're still alive, you are slowly dying. So you looked for other things. To fill the void. But nothing works. It just kills you faster. And it separates us more and more. What are you searching for? destroyed, but to know me, so I became one of you, a fragile creation. I was tempted, but I never sinned. I came to save you. You have so many sins, and they have a cost. 
someone has to die. You or me. So I took on your sin and traded in my life for yours. Follow me. It's the question of the morning. Will you follow? Jesus is calling. And the, the path, it's simple, but not easy. This morning, I challenge you to hear the call of the rabbi on your life. The master is calling. To take a moment and count the cost and understand what he's asking of you. But then, to leave it all follow after him. I want to invite our elders and their wives to come forward. We're going to spend a couple of moments in song, but if you'd like to talk with someone or to pray over where you stand in following after Jesus, then please come forward and do so. After a few verses, we'll uh, close together and, and, uh, and be dismissed to go follow after Jesus in our community. But for now, let's stand and sing, and if you'd like to pray with someone, invite you to come forward. The question today is, will you follow? How do you need to follow? What's your next step? What do you need to leave behind as you follow? Jesus loves you and has a plan for you to be a rescuer, a fisher of men go into the dark places and make a difference. Are you ready? Will you step out in obedience to him? You've gathered as the church today. Now, go and be the church in this community, following Jesus in every aspect of life. Be blessed and experience his power in every moment.